Morning, Bethel. Good to see you all here this morning, and good to worship our great God and Savior together. Okay, so we're going through a series on 2 Corinthians. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we typically go through books of the Bible, um, kind of a chunk at a time. And so last week we were looking at 2 Corinthians 8. This week we're looking at chapter 9. Um, So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll read that passage in just a moment. So you can find that on page 968. If you don't have a Bible or if you want to use the Bible in the pew, you can find our passage on page 968. So before we read it, I want you to just think about some things. Um, So if you're a Christian, been in the church, you probably heard calls for giving in the church, okay? There's, Jesus talked about money a fair amount, okay? So just a bunch of questions to get you thinking, thinking about what's going on in your own mind and heart in relation to money and giving. How do the Bibles... God's commands to give generously, sacrificially, even cheerfully, how do those fall on you? So let's say if you've heard a sermon about giving, how does your mind and your heart respond typically? Or how has it responded in the past? And for what it's worth, if you're visiting, I think in the eight years that I've been here, probably preached on this a handful of times. So last week and this week, just because it's where, where we are in 2 Corinthians. It's not because we talk about money all the time here at Bethel. Um, and that is what a lot of people think, sometimes inside the church, sometimes outside the church. So let me just dispel that. Um, in fact, I got a letter last week from someone who, who doesn't attend our church, but said that church is just all about the money. Well, that's not the case here. But yes, that's what we're talking about this morning. So keep coming. We won't be talking about money next week. Um, But anyway, but money is important and it really reveals our hearts. So anyway, how does your mind and heart respond? How's it responding right now? Maybe. Do these kind of calls or commands for giving, do they seem like a heavy burden that you wish you didn't have to bear? or like an obligation that you'd rather not fulfill? Or when it comes to giving and and all this stuff, do you sometimes like just try to kind of ignore it and not think about it? Like soon this sermon will be over and then I can kind of forget about this for a while because obviously they don't preach about money a whole lot here. Um, Do you treat it like maybe the grocery store request, you know, to donate a dollar to the children's charity? Like you're kind of guilty and nervous for a second until you decline or say yes, and then you can forget about it. Hurry up and get past it so that you don't have to feel guilty. Or do you do your giving kind of like the tip jar at the coffee shop? You know, put a little something in now and then just to be nice. You don't really want to give to the point where you'd feel it, but it does make you feel better. So any of that resonate with you? Maybe it doesn't, but if not, what what is going through your mind? What does go through your mind, your heart, in response to giving? Say to tithing or 
to sacrificial giving or to generous giving or to cheerful giving, like when these things are talked about, how do you respond? So if you think or if you feel like Christian giving is a burdensome duty, if you ever think that giving cheerfully seems like, come on, that's kind of like unrealistic. If you ever resonate with any of that, I can pretty confidently say that you've gotten those ideas from somewhere other than the Bible. Okay? Probably a combination of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what I mean by the flesh is kind of our sinful nature, our selfish, sinful nature. The devil would love for you to have that idea. The world is certainly going to tell you that's crazy. Those kinds of ideas just don't come from God. You may have gathered those attitudes from other Christians. That certainly happens. But that, those kinds of ideas don't come from God or from his word. So hopefully we all want to think and feel and have our giving shaped by God and his word. So hopefully we come open to that this morning. Do you want that? I, I won't have you answer it, but Hopefully that's the heart's desire is, yes, I want God's word to shape me in regard to giving rather than the world around me or my selfish heart or whatever else. So 2 Corinthians 9 is a major part of what God says in his word about giving. In fact, these two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, are the most extended section in the Bible about giving. So it's a big deal. So let's read the passage and then um, we'll dive in. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 15 here. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. 
while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. All right. So there's an outline in the bulletin if it's helpful. You'll see the uh, points on the screen behind me so you can follow along. So first point, we see the heart of giving. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 7. Okay, so let's just look at them again here. Read them again. We're familiarized now. We walked through the whole section. But let's take them apart uh, a section at a time. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. Macedonia was a region, so Philippi, the Philippian church, you know, another one of the New Testament letters, that's one of the churches in Macedonia, just like Corinth was a church in Achaia. Achaia is the broader region. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred most of them. So do you remember last week? The beginning of chapter 8, Paul tells the Corinthians about the zeal of the Macedonian church to give generously, even out of their poverty. So it was an example to the Corinthians. And what he says here is, actually, before they were an example to you, you were an example to them. So you were kind of stirring each other up. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me, remember, we told, you, we told them about your readiness. If some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. In other words, you would be humiliated too for us being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So if you haven't been walking through 2 Corinthians with us here, this could be like, what is going on? So a little bit of background here so you understand the story. The Corinthians, Gentile church, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul had urged the Corinthians to make a collection for the poor saints back in Jerusalem. Okay, there was a famine at the time, and those poor saints were suffering. So Jew-Gentile relationship in the first century was not good. So if this Gentile church, these people that had become Christians in Corinth, would raise money and bless the Jerusalem Jewish Christians, it would be a beautiful illustration of unity in Christ that overcame these kind of cultural barriers, Right? So it would meet the needs of the saints because the Corinthians were better off, but it would also be this powerful statement of Christian unity. It would be a way of literally putting their money where their mouth was as far as their faith is concerned and Christian love and unity. But unfortunately, between 1 and 2 Corinthians, the relationship Paul to the Corinthian church got really strained, almost to the point of breaking. So false apostles had crept in, led the church astray. The next time Paul visited, there was this opposition party. And they opposed him to his face, and he actually withdrew, not because he was a coward, but because he didn't want to have to judge him on the spot. So he withdrew, and he wrote the tearful letter that he references in chapter 2. A strong call to repentance, but it was soaked with tears because he just was brokenhearted at how they had gotten so hardened. 
So he sent the letter with Titus, and he's anxiously waiting for their response. When he finally met up with Titus in Macedonia, he was so happy to hear that the majority had repented. Now that they've repented, one of the issues that Paul returns to is the issue of the collection. Way back when, you promised it. Now, follow through. That's what's going on here. Okay, they had this great desire to participate. Now Paul is urging them to complete in action what they had begun in desire. That's the purpose of chapters 8 and 9. So money is always a touchy subject. Paul takes great care in these chapters in the way that he handles it. And we find out a ton about Christian giving in these chapters. So the first thing that jumps off the page in these first seven verses is how God cares about our hearts. Okay, the heart behind giving our motivation, our attitude in giving. Did you notice it there at the end of verse 5? He said, I, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. If Paul didn't give them the heads up like this, you can imagine some of them, Paul shows up and he's like, okay, I'm ready to take the gift. And they're, oh. And now they're on the spot and they're under pressure, and they could feel like it was the tax collector at the door. Like, come on, get it together. He didn't want that because that's not the kind of giving he wanted to promote. He wanted them to do it willingly from the heart, not as an exaction. This isn't a tax. So he wisely wrote ahead of time so that they would get it together so that it could just be easily handed off when he arrived. So he wants them to give it as a willing gift. And then he reminds them of some proverbial wisdom. Look at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So statements like this, pretty common in the ancient world. There's a few places in Proverbs, actually, where this truism is echoed. Okay? Why does Paul quote it here? Why does he say this here? Because he wants their hearts to be in their giving. He wants to remind them of the fruitfulness of generous giving. He wants them to reap bountifully. Do you want to reap bountifully? Or do you, would you prefer to reap sparingly? Do you, do you see how it grabs our hearts? This is not just an obligation or a duty. This is, wait a second. I want to reap bountifully. He doesn't want them to be stingy. Stingy sowers reap stingy harvests. Generous sowers reap generous harvests. So this is actually intended to help them have the right heart attitude toward giving. So it's a gracious proverb intended to help their hearts be in it. And then Paul says one of the most important things about the heart of Christian giving in verse 7. Look at it there. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Okay, it's between you and God. Paul's not telling them how much to give. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not, not reluctantly, not grudgingly, or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul and God... They don't want us, this isn't just for the Corinthians, this is for us to give reluctantly or grudgingly. 
God doesn't want us to give out a sense of compulsory duty. He wants us to give willingly and cheerfully. Is that how you typically give? Whether it's your normal budgeted giving or a response to some urgent needs, or is it like, another request? You know, again, we can't say yes to every request, but how do we respond? How does our heart respond to opportunities to give? Remember those Corinthians? Or I'm sorry, remember those Macedonians in chapter 8 at the beginning? They were begging for the opportunity. And they were not well off. They were poor. But they just wanted to get in on it. So if this seems like an impossible thing, at least impossible for consistently living out, like willing, cheerful, not begrudging, how do you give like that? Where's the power for that? Well, that's right where Paul goes next in verses 8 to 11, the power of Christian giving. So let's look at those verses together. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. All grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Are there enough superlatives in there for you? Do you think he wants us to get how wide and long and high and deep his grace is? How rich and abundant his grace is? He is able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times we abound in every good work. As it is written, he quotes Psalm 112, which is about a man who trusts the Lord and gives generously and his righteousness endures as opposed to the unrighteous person who lives selfishly and they just fizzle out. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then look at how Paul unpacks that in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower, who's that? Who gives the sower his seed? God does. And he who supplies bread for food, God, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is, just says, God is the giver. God is the giver. God's going to take, like he's going to give you everything you need at every stage of the game. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. We'll look at that next phrase in the next point. But again, we're asking the question, how do we give willingly and cheerfully? How do we sow generously? Where's the power to do that? The power is found in God's gracious promises. Giving is intended to be done in the power of the promise. Do you see the promises here in 8 to 11? They're jam-packed with gracious promises. Promises that are powerful to enable glad and generous giving. You see how Paul reasons here. So here's how you ought to give willingly, bountifully, cheerfully. Here's the heart. And okay, here's the opportunity. I'm coming to get it. Take it to these poor Christians or for us, you know, whatever the giving context is. 
How do we give this way? We do it by the grace of God. Do we believe these gracious promises that God is really able to make all grace abound to you so that you'll have all sufficiency in all things at all times to abound in every good work, every good work that he calls you to? God is able to do it. Why is it, if you shrink back, just think about times when you you shrink back from giving, you dial back. I mean, sometimes there's things that happen in life, and we certainly need to do that. That's wisdom. But I'm talking about for self-protective or selfish reasons. Why do we not give generally, or generously, willingly, cheerfully? It's because we doubt that we're going to have enough. It's because we fear. What if? It's because we get anxious. It's because we get self-protective. We are now ensuring our future rather than trusting God. But God is just making some crazy promises here to us, and he wants us to trust him. So all these promises that he's able to make all grace abound, that he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, You know where that all comes from, that word enriched? Do you remember last week in chapter 8? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Okay? The incarnation, becoming a slave, even to the point of death on a cross, to die in our place, so that the penalty of our sin, we owe an infinite debt to God, and Jesus died to pay it all. And so if you have seen your sin, the debt that you owe God, and then God has opened your eyes to see that in Jesus that debt is completely paid for. Remember when he said, it is finished? Completely paid for, past, present, future, all sins, under the blood, cast as far as the east is from the west, If you've known that kind of rich mercy and grace, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. doesn't mean you go live like Benny Hinn. It means you are enriched with all these gracious promises. God is for you and not against you. He's your father. He owns everything, and he's your father. He's going to take care of you. He knows what we need even before we ask. So the fact that he, was, he became poor so that we would become rich, that's where verse 11 comes from. You will be enriched. All the promises are yes in Christ. Remember back in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians? So all these promises are bought by the rich grace of Jesus, and they're ours. So knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus provides these promises that we will be enriched in every way for all generosity. So the riches are given to us for a reason, not for us to just kind of hold on to them, but for us to be conduits of them to other people, showing the same generosity that Jesus has shown to us. So these promises are powerful. This is like rocket fuel for gracious giving. Okay, so... How can you sow generously? By trusting God's promise to provide abundantly. Okay, so we can give 
cheerfully, we can give generously because God is going to take care of us. We need to believe these promises. We need to learn to live by grace through faith. We need to learn to give by grace through faith. So when it comes to biblical motivation for giving, listen, guilt trips are not what God sends people on. Jesus does not browbeat us into opening our wallets. There's no cajoling. There's no manipulation. Instead, Jesus makes promises, like crazy wonderful promises, good for us and other, others promises. And then he looks us in the eye and he says, do you trust me? Do you believe me? So if we turn away, it's not because he hasn't done enough or said enough or promised enough. It's because we don't trust him. It's not because he's given us the short end of the stick. Listen, those Macedonian Christians didn't have much at all. So like I said last week, generosity is not a function of wealth. Okay? It doesn't come from having more. It comes from having grace. <laughs> it comes from having Jesus. So, are we going to believe him? We don't want to hold on to low-yield, short-term gains of this world when he offers us high-yield, eternally long-term gains of the kingdom of heaven. So the motivation, the appeal to giving in the Bible over and over again is not guilt and obligation. It is grace and gain and promise and good and glory all over the place. It's about getting in on reward and rich harvest. God wants us to reap bountifully. Isn't that cool? So if we're stingy and we merely treat God like the barista, you know, in the tip jar, we are living by sight and not by faith. If we sow sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly. Don't you want to reap bountifully? Don't you want to taste the sweet, abundant fruit of generous, willing, cheerful giving? I was just thinking this morning of Chuck, Chuck Barmore and his funeral. And they had um, one of his girls, um, one of the pastors from the church, or worship leader from the church sang that thank you song by Ray Bolts. And, you know, there's all this testimony of Chuck's generosity, money, but also time and talents and all of this, and it bore fruit. That love poured out in people's lives. There's lots of people saying, I'm so thankful for Chuck. And that song is basically talking about getting to heaven and receiving this rich welcome and all these thank yous because you gave, and that's why people are there. Don't you want a rich welcome when you get to heaven? All right, so look at the fruit that Paul describes here in verses 11 to 15, because we want a rich harvest, a sweet, bountiful harvest, and that's what Paul's pointing at in verses 11 to 15. 11's kind of a hinge, so we talked about the beginning of verse 11, but look now at the end of verse 11. So you'll be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What's he saying there? We're going to take your gift and we're going to walk it to Jerusalem and give it to those poor saints. So through us, 
they're going to say, thank you, God. Like we were starving, and now we're going to make it because of what those, because of your grace in the lives of those Corinthians. So that happens over and over again. People get cared for because other people give, and they thank God for the faithfulness and generosity of other people. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, which it was in Jerusalem, needy saints in the midst of a famine, but it's also, look at this, there's more fruit than that. It overflows in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, like when they receive it and say, thank you, they will glorify God. Where did this giving come from? Where did that giving, like that generous, willing heart come from? It came from the grace of God. So God gets the glory. By the approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. So they receive this generous gift and man, those people in in Corinth, they really know the grace of Jesus. So don't you want that to be said of you as well? Don't we want that? So by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you. Isn't this beautiful as far as the fruit? These people actually, it's instrumental in producing love and unity between people in the first century that were like usually bitter enemies. They will long for you, pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then he summarizes, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's too good for words. It's too wonderful for words. So the result of this generous giving, multiplied thanksgiving. More unity among the churches, the people of God, more glory to God. So so let's say we give money and we make the coffee house happen in France. And then somebody gets saved at the coffee house. And they're talking to Don and Sue. And Don and Sue say, do you know how this coffee shop happened? It happened because of, you know, this church and that church and this church making it happen. And then what if we send a team over there and that person that became a Christian gets to meet a team from Bethel? They're going to go, you, you, I'm here because of you. Thank you. That can happen like thousands of different ways. And it's wonderful, isn't it? That's some sweet fruit. You want to have a bountiful harvest. So here it's producing more unity among the churches, the people of God, more glory to God, more thanksgiving. I mean, who wouldn't want that? So again, the way giving is talked about in the Bible is always gain, reward, fruit, not duty and obligation and burden. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do you believe that? You see how Jesus is saying, do you trust me? (laughs) The rich young ruler, he said, go sell what you have, give your money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And he went like this. (sighs) Because he had much property. But he didn't just have much property. He did a little cost-benefit analysis right there on the spot. Treasure in heaven? You mean the kind that, like, 
thieves can't break in and steal and moth can't destroy. And this is like eternal in the heavens, like property. He didn't see it. He didn't believe. But then there's this guy that's walking along and he strikes something with his walking stick and there's this treasure and he opens it up and it's like worth $50 million. The field costs 300000 but he's going to have to, he's going to sell everything to buy the field. 300000 $50 million. In his joy, he's giggling all the way to the pawn shop. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field because of how valuable the field is. It's what our missions conference is all about. It's called Worth It. Got your rubber band on. Rubber band, what is this called? <laughs> Wristband, sorry. Um, so anyway, this is how the Bible motivates us. So God motivates us to give. Thanks be to God that he set it up this way. Isn't this amazing? Talk about a win-win. Inexpressible gift. Too wonderful for words. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we know that grace, that grace just fills us with grace to give grace so that other people thank God for the grace. From him, through him, to him, all things. God gets the glory. Other people get the help. We get blessing and reward. <laughs> Forgiving what God gave to us. Like it's, it's not even ours in the first place. We're just stewards. So picture it this way. I want you to put these two chapters together. This to me, is really helpful. I hope it's maybe helpful to you. We live by faith between the cross and the promise every day. How do you give generously? Okay, I'm living today by faith. What does it look like to walk by faith and not by sight? How do I do that? You live, let me, I guess I do it this way. Between the cross, the cross is behind us. The promise is out in front of us, right? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. You, through his poverty, might become rich and it will empower you to give. And there's a promise. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So you look back in faith and you say, man, God's generous. He has poured out his riches into my life. I want to richly bless others. Man, God is generous. Look at how he promises to take care of me. I can trust him to give generously. Faith looks back to the cross. Faith looks forward to the promise. And in the present, you can give from a willing heart. Does that make sense? So guess what? It's kind of helpful. The numbers flip-flop. Eight, nine, nine, eight. Eight, nine is you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. So we live between the cross and the promise, between eight, nine, the grace of our Lord Jesus, and nine, eight, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Crazy, rich promise. So we trust him in the present, looking back, looking forward, and walking forward in faith. So Randy Halcorn sums it up well. Our giving is a reflexive response to the grace of God in our lives. It doesn't come out of our altruism or philanthropy. It comes out of the transforming work of Christ in us. This grace is the action. Our giving is the reaction. We give because he first gave to us. The greatest passage on giving in all Scripture ends not with congratulations for your generosity, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 
Speaking of Randy Alcorn, Tyler, I forgot to get the books. I have a stack of treasure principle books in my office. Would you mind running to grab them? Thank you. Um, so for Beth and I, this little book by Randy Alcorn was life-changing. To actually get to the point where you wanted to give because you realized what God is promising. So a little, little book, and we have, I, I have some extra copies, and I would love to give you one. If you want to read this book, if you're willing to read this book, commit to reading it, you can have a copy. We'll just have them right here on the front um, afterwards, okay? So let me close with an illustration. I've, I've quoted this one time before. It was years ago, but it's just so helpful in illustrating what we're talking about here, and then um, we'll be done. It's by Ray Ortland. Picture yourself standing with Jesus on the sidewalk of a commercial park somewhere here in town. He points to a building on one side of the street. Don't invest in that company, Earth, Inc. Their security system is inadequate. People are hacking into their computers. Their physical plant is aging. In fact, their site is condemned. But look over here on this side of the street, Heaven, Inc. Their assets are secure, backed up by the Lord of the universe. Their security is infallible and their performance impeccable. They have never lost one single dime. Every dollar invested with them has repaid big time. Why do we even hesitate? When we realize what Jesus is saying, the conclusion is obvious. So why don't we live this way more aggressively? It can't be because heaven is out in our future because earthly investments also require us to wait. So delay isn't the problem. The problem is unbelief. Something inside feels that earthly wealth is more real than heavenly wealth. Heavenly wealth seems ethereal, thin, unsatisfying. We don't invest more aggressively in heaven because heaven seems unreal, which is another way of saying, saying that God seems unreal. When it comes to investments, what really compels us is the earthly. The Bible says of Abraham that he was seeking a city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. Abraham lived in a tent. He was a nomad. But God invited him to go on a pilgrimage for a well-established city, and Abraham followed. To him, what a well-established city was to a tent, heaven was to earth, more solid, better established. That man was a believer. <laughs> Did you know that 50 years, this would probably be updated to like Amazon or something or Google, but go with it because he, he wrote it this way several years ago. Did you know that 50 years ago, $166 bought one share of Coca-Cola stock? And left untouched today, it would be 2,500 shares worth $167,000. You could have multiplied your initial investment 1,000 times. Now, as soon as I say that, we're saying to ourselves, boy, I wish I'd had the foresight to do that. What else is out there right now that might be, in, might be the next Coca-Cola? How are my investments doing? What do I need to move around in the market? All I have to do is drop that little factoid about Coke into the mental pool and ripples form immediately. If we don't respond to the opportunity for heavenly investment with at least the same enthusiasm, it shows what we really believe in. If we believed that heaven was a better investment than earth, Jesus wouldn't have preached about it. We wouldn't need persuasion. We'd only need opportunity, and people would be fighting for first place in line, kind of like the Macedonians that are saying, like earnestly desiring to participate. But why does Jesus even bother to tell us this? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus wasn't mounting a fundraising drive. His own personal needs were minimal. He wasn't launching building plans. Jesus had no institutional motivation for saying this. What does he care about our investments? Lay up treasure in heaven. He doesn't need our money. 
Does he even care about these little human contrivances called dollars, pounds, francs, and yen? What's motivating Jesus? Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants our hearts. And do you see what he's implying? He has just advised us to invest well. Now he's implying, I know you care about your hoard. You care a lot, so secure it. Don't let the moth, rust, and thieves rifle through your pockets. Protect your investments by sending them on ahead to heaven. But what I want is your heart, and I want you to invest enough in heaven so that your heart's loyalty transfers up there. That's actually what the treasure principle is all about. Did you get those? Great. Okay, so we'll put them up here for afterwards. So listen, folks, brothers and sisters. In fact, if you're visiting or if you're not a Christian, like, we don't want your money. If you're not a Christian, we want you to have Jesus. He's the greatest treasure, and I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. But if you're a believer, listen, I don't know how much you should give. That's between you and the Lord. But I do know what what he wants to give you. (laughs) He wants to give you a lot of grace. And also know the heart he wants to form in you and me. The kind of heart that he's talking about here in chapter 9. And I think if we get this perspective, listen, we might even start scheming and hustling for the sake of the kingdom like we sometimes do when we need to get ahead financially. So maybe we should get creative. Like I was thinking with our community group talking tonight, maybe we should do like this yard sale thing or, you know, sell some books or like sell stuff. Just I don't even need this stuff and pull it together as a community group and give it to some worthy charity, some one of our missionaries for a project or something like that. So maybe you want to do something like that. Brainstorm with your community group. So remember, you are here between the cross and the promise, between the infinite grace of the cross and the superabundant grace of the promises of God. So let's trust our generous God and walk by faith. Amen? All right. Let's pray, and then appropriately we're going to sing Thank You, Jesus, as we close. God, you are rich in mercy and grace. Please give us eyes to see it and soft hearts to receive it. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.